thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Why should conservation efforts concentrate on the cute and charismatic? It's Sunday the 28th of October and on today's Naked Scientists we will plead the conservation case for ugly animals, pathogens and even parasites. I'm Ben Valsler and this week I'm joined by Helen Scales. Hello, also this week we'll discover a bacterial cocktail that can see off C. diff and hear about the plight of British oysters. And we want to hear from you. What ugly animal do you think should be high on the preservation priority list? Get in touch with your ideas and your questions. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, join us at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists, or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. The IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, currently has over 4,000 species listed as critically endangered on its red list, a comprehensive list of threatened species. This includes high-profile animals like the mountain gorilla and lots of different species of leopard, but also snails, worms, spiders and other less graceful animals. Publicity and fundraising campaigns often focus on the cute, charismatic or cuddly animals, possibly leaving nature's less aesthetically pleasing species behind. Well, biologist Simon Watt is now taking a stand for these underdogs and has created the Ugly Animal Preservation Society. Simon, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, What inspired you in the first place to be the voice for ugly animals? Oh, it's kind of strange. It's been one of those ideas that's kind of been kicking around in my brain for a couple of years. But I think the real thing that was the the crux was I was doing a talk at a book festival. Um, We were sort of advertising books for and and selling things for uh, some biology books that I was writing for. And I just mentioned how myopic we are in terms of our conservation efforts and the species that we view and deem as being worthwhile. And I was championing to the crowd all these ugly things which I enjoy and I like and I find fascinating and do matter just as much biologically. And uh, one of the audience just said, yeah, you should do something about that. So why are ugly animals important? Why should we be conserving them? Uh, Well, we can argue that to some extent, at least all of the living things, all of the uh, creatures on the planet have got some kind of value. And we can say that mainly because there is a sort of web of interconnectedness that is in ecology. Um, I remember at school, whenever I was studying biology, I used to find ecology very boring, actually, because it seemed that the answer to every single question was just everything is connected. So I think we have to think about all the ugly things because they do have a place 
Absolutely. And uh, and they are being failed by conservation efforts at the moment, these less immediately charismatic species. Is that right? Well, it's hard to tell. I, I think the thing is we have to get away from this idea of a species-based approach to conservation. And the good news is that we, by and large, are. Things like the panda and whatnot do matter as icons, but what we really need to focus on is the habitat. If we save where these species live, generally everything else gets saved besides. So the panda actually is a good example for that, because in conserving the panda, we're also conserving the territory that's of the red panda and of golden monkeys and all sorts of other things that live in the bamboo forests there. So I guess that's an example of uh, a species that's really a kind of umbrella, really, for for conserving wider areas for habitats, like you say. Are we going to be able to use ugly species as as these sort of ambassadors for conservation? How is that going to? How are we going to get people excited about conserving things that aren't giant pandas and leopards and so on? Well, I think we really can because they might not be pretty, but they're still damn interesting. There's some amazing creatures out there. I, I know that one of the ones that I, I frequently champion just because I think it's amazing is this thing called the Canadian blue-gray tail-dropper slug. And it's great because it's kind of a smurf blue, which is interesting in its own right. Um, but if you scare it, its bum drops off. <laughs> yes, it's a survival uh, sorry, can mechanism. I just check it? A blue slug whose bum drops off if it gets scared. Is that right? That, spot on. Basically, <laughs> if a predator sneaks up on it, it leaves a meal behind. So the predator will stop and eat the tail while it's kind of legs it or legs it as fast as a slug can. <laughs> and its its bum grows back, I hope? Yeah. It's a bit like an axolotl or a salamander. It can regrow various parts of its body. That's great. I have seen, I've seen little geckos drop their tails when they get uh, caught by cats in the tropics, and that's quite odd. It kind of slots off and then wriggles around for a bit. So I could see how that would work. What other favourite uh, ugly species are you championing the conservation of? What else should we be caring about? Well, funny, a good time to ask, because um, the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, of which I'm kind of president for life, we had our kind of first... We call it our general meeting, but it was basically an excuse to get lots of comedians that I know to to get together, and each one was going to champion a different ugly species. And at the end, the audience was going to vote as to what was going to be the representative, our our mascot, our equivalent of the, the panda, an ugly panda, if you will. And the audience voted for the proboscis monkey, which was being championed by Ellie Taylor. Oh, I would say a proboscis monkey's not that ugly, is it? I think they're, they're wonderful creatures. I've always nicknamed them the Jim Henson monkey because they look an awful lot like a monkey that was designed in Jim Henson's creature workshop. It doesn't really look real. It looks a little bit sort of prosthetic, that nose. Well, if you think the nose is cute enough, their digestive system should really put you off. They basically are massively flatulent. Uh, oh, their stomach right. ends up being bloated and everything because of the food they eat. Uh, they're just peculiar looking. If nothing else, you can't see their mouth, so you can't lip read. Fantastic. And I, I assume that these, these ugly species are everywhere. They aren't just, uh, it's not just the case that we have to um, go off to a tropical rainforest to find these things. Are, are they also, you know, in our back gardens and, and easier places to find? Well, I think ugly is in the eye of the beholder, but definitely the vast majority of things that are out there are not cute and cuddly. We we are so obsessed with mammals and birds. We basically don't care about things if they're not cute and fluffy, if they don't have a kind of face that we can recognise. The vast majority of stuff out there just doesn't fit our kind of criteria. Absolutely. I'm always trying to champion the fish um, because they, they, aren't, they don't have feathers or fur. Um, but what can we start doing to help protect these, these ugly species? What do we need to do? Well, actively, habitat is the way forward. We have to accept that, according to recent estimates, there might be, say, 8.3 million species of plants and animals and things out there. And the only real way of conserving them is to look after where they live, to accept these kind of webs of interconnectedness, that if you affect one species, you will affect the other. Perhaps the best example we can think of like this at the moment is the, the problems we've been having with bees, 
we can see how whenever the bee populations crash, there's trouble with pollinating of certain plants and things like that. And presumably um, you've got the connections back from these, these ugly species to the ones we think are more beautiful as well. So if we want to preserve the panda, we need to think about these ugly ugly ones too. They're, all those connections are important. And uh, we actually we asked our listeners if they had any examples of ugly things they would like to conserve. Uh, Joe Kelly suggested the blobfish. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen this extraordinary photograph of a deep sea <laughs> fish. I mean, the poor thing has been yanked out of its habitat and brought many hundreds, if not thousands of metres up to the surface. So it's looking a bit sad. Um, I would yeah, definitely Yeah, it does look emotional, doesn't it? It really does it look has quite been, sad. It has been described as the most miserable looking species on Earth. Now, I think the blobfish may have been one of the ones that was promoted at your evening last week. What was said about it? Why should we conserve the blobfish? Um, funny, it wasn't promoted directly in our case. I kind of actually did a pre-record and did a little bit of animation and it ended up introducing some of our acts. So the blobfish kind of himself was being the compare for the evening? Uh, a little bit. He introduced me. <laughs> Wonderful. CB Axel on Twitter has already said that the ugly animal he would preserve is himself. And we asked why, and he said, because it's me. Now, obviously, that's uh, that's not a very positive way to think about yourself. But I guess it could be argued that to most of the animal species, humans aren't all that attractive anyway. Now, Simon will be with us for the rest of the show, so if you do have any questions for him or if you do want to suggest your favourite ugly animal, then tweet at Naked Scientists, join us at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, microorganisms like bacteria are absolutely everywhere. We've yet to investigate an environment on Earth that hasn't shown at least some evidence of bacterial life. Given their ubiquity and their ability to survive in almost any environment, as well as their reputation for causing diseases in humans and in important crop plants, you could be forgiven for thinking that microbes are not and should not be a conservation priority. But that's not the case, according to Aberystwyth University researcher Gareth Griffith. He's calling for a global strategy on microbial conservation, and he joins us now. So, Gareth, microbes, are they really under threat? Well, there's certainly uh, we need to um, change the perception that they are everywhere and all of them are everywhere and therefore, by definition, they're unlikely to be, be sort of endangered or go extinct. That was a perception that held strongly for a long time in microbiology. Now, this was the strange idea that essentially all microbes exist everywhere but the environment then just selects out the ones that succeed. That's not the case, you're saying? No, there's vast amounts of evidence now as we look more closely that that is not the case and they, most species that have been looked at show biogeographical distribution. So with regards to conservation, what actually is the problem that we're facing? I think in the case of the microbes, it's the absence of any appreciation that they might face extinction to start with. We're starting at the very bottom here. So it's not that they're neglected, they're not even considered. I don't think um, the CBD has made any mention of bacteria or the archaea in terms of the fact that they might be threatened. I suppose I'd extended it to just to point out that of all the, you know, the domains of life and the kingdoms within the eukaryotes, that uh, the ones we've focused our attention on are just the two kingdoms, the plants and the animals, and all the other ones need some attention. So they're not appearing on the red lists. They're obviously not becoming uh, icons for animal preservation societies. How is this reflected in the actual scientific research? I mean, is there a body of mainstream conservation research into microbes that just isn't getting the promotion, or is the research not there in the first place? 
Well, some microbes are getting some attention. I'm a mycologist. That's my speciality within microbiology, and some fungi are attracting some conservation attention, but definitely second-class citizens with respect to relative to the plants. And so we know that some fungi actually play incredibly important roles in keeping plants alive. There are what's called mycorrhizal relationships between the roots and the fungi that live in the soil. Is this the sort of thing you are worried about losing if we fail to conserve microbes properly? Yes, the survival of many larger organisms is very likely dependent on the presence of certain microbes that help them function properly. So it, it isn't just a case of we need to conserve them for their own sake, but in fact there are various knock-on effects that we could have if we fail to put this effort in. Yes, I think we've been, we're learning an awful lot now. The, the, the fact that we can do this next-gen sequencing, this very high-throughput sequencing now, is revealing to us where these microbes are and also where they aren't. And also, for example, in human health... Um, the fact that the gut microbes, the, the vast majority of gut microbes, aren't pathogenic to us. And we're now building up a picture that the, the absence of a healthy gut community leads to ill health. And in fact, we'll be hearing a bit later on in the show about how a certain cocktail of gut microbes can help protect against C. diff, which is a very dangerous and risky infection. So does that mean that, that there's a sort of a, a genetic wealth of potential out there in the microbial community that we could be taking advantage of? Yeah, if you take it as a whole, the, the microbes are metabolically hugely diverse and can conduct many biochemical reactions that animals and plants can't conduct. And therefore, you know, for our own sake, just for biotechnological reasons, we have an interest in making sure that none of them go extinct. Now, that reflects something that a user on Twitter said. Their name is Foodie Fancy Pants. And they've got in touch to say that, that parasites and bacteria are nature's unique chemical converters. And so they're absolutely worth conserving. Now, this seems quite... Uh, a one-sided way of looking at it. We're thinking of things we can do with them, things we can use them for, opportunities we have to exploit them. Presumably there are also broader arguments with regards to the fact that these are just as worth conserving as any panda or rhino. Yes, I think there's a, a sort of a, all species have equal value in that respect. I know that some will attract more attention than others, like the panda, but there's no reason to have a hierarchy of importance amongst the organisms that inhabit the planet. So what do we now need to do to start, not just actually start conserving them, but how do we select priorities amongst microbes? Because we have our red list that, that categorises things as critically endangered or endangered or extinct in the wild, and that sort of gives us a, a, a hierarchy of priority as to which ones need the most effort. How can we start putting together something like that for species as diverse and as poorly understood as the microbial community? I think exactly as Simon said earlier, you need to focus on the habitats, but not just the habitats where you can see larger organisms. There are, there's virtually no habitat on the planet that is sterile, but there are many of them that don't have macroorganisms, macrobes, as I've been calling them, animals and plants, visible. So you could take the, you know, the hot springs or the many cold areas of the planet where there aren't any larger organisms, but there are diverse microbes present there. So it's, it's concentrating on habitats, you know, but not just you know, all habitats. <laughs> Now, one habitat that you have mentioned in some of your writing about this is actually Lake Vostok. Now, this is an interesting subglacial lake, which we know that a, a Russian team have been attempting to make their way down into. Presumably, it could harbour very unique microbial species. Is this something we need to think about before we actually get into there, just as much as we think about making sure we don't actually infect Mars with microbes on space probes? 
Yeah, I think it's a very similar argument. Um, with Lake Vostok, um, since I wrote the article that we've been talking about, um, the Russians have drilled in, but I think they did face uh, quite a lot of criticism, so they were more cautious than they had originally intended to be. So they only actually extracted a small amount of water out and didn't find anything in there. But I think they've sort of their next attempt will... Um, involve a lot more caution because of the dangers of infecting with surface microbes. And speaking of infection, of course, the, the one thing that people really think of bacteria and microbes is in their role in human infection and in destroying plants. How can we balance the, the need to conserve these sorts of species with the fact that actually they're, they're deleterious for our health or our lifestyles? Well, I think in many cases, and uh, I think C. diff might be a good example of this, it's the disruption of a healthy, natural microbial ecosystem that can lead to disease. Nature abhors a vacuum, and therefore if you disrupt the existing ecosystem, pathogenic organisms can thrive. And you're calling for what, what you've called a global strategy for microbial conservation. How would that actually work? I think it's up to us as microbiologists to get, our, get ourselves together and decide, focus on certain priorities. As, as I said, it's, um, it's those habitats that are neglected are the ones that the microbiologists could focus on. The one I haven't mentioned yet is soils, tremendously important for, for all human activity, yet very much unknown. We know they're the most diverse habitats on the planet. Even Leonardo da Vinci, four or five hundred years ago, said that we knew more about the stellar constellations than the soil beneath our feet, and that is still true now. So there's clearly a need to try and conserve these habitats. What sorts of scientific techniques are we actually able to put to the task? Well, we're very lucky to be benefiting from these advances in molecular biology, especially high-throughput sequencing. The, you know, the ones that give the th- you know, will shortly give the thousand-pound human genome, and so forth. Um, these things can be applied to the study of microbial ecology as well. So we can just take samples of seawater and sequence all the organisms in them. Metagenomic studies. So this allows us to see all of the different genes that are there to work out all of the different species that might be hanging hanging about, and that gives us a really good idea of where our priorities need to be put. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Gareth. That is Gareth Griffith from Aberystwyth University. And you're listening to The Naked Scientists. Still to come, we'll hear about the cocktail of gut bacteria that can fight back against infection with Clostridium difficile, or C. diff. And we'll return to our topic of ugly conservation to find out why we should preserve parasites. But first... Faults in mitochondria, the so-called powerhouse of a cell, are the cause of a number of human disorders. Now, researchers in Oregon have demonstrated successful replacement of mitochondrial DNA in egg cells that then developed into healthy animals. Mitochondria are passed down from mother to child, and errors in mitochondrial DNA, which is also called mtDNA, can lead to a range of conditions including heart failure, muscle weakness and blindness. It's thought that these errors may affect as many as 1 in 200 children, but it seems that around 1 in 5,000 show evidence of disease at birth, and there are currently no cures and no treatments uh, that do anything other than alleviate the symptoms and delay disease progression. So what can we do? Well, an ideal solution would be to try and avoid inheriting damaged mtDNA at all. And to this end, Masahito Takibana from the Oregon Health and Science University and his colleagues have been researching ways to replace faulty mitochondria in human egg cells, which are also called oocytes, with healthy ones from a healthy donor. 
Okay, so that sounds good. Um, how are these researchers actually trying to do this? Well, at the moment, they are using donated human oocytes, egg cells, and they are extracting what's called the genomic DNA. Now, that's the general DNA that makes you unique. And they implant that into an egg that has healthy mitochondria, but has had its own genomic DNA removed. So you're essentially shifting all of the DNA that makes you from one egg cell into another one. Those eggs are then fertilised by IVF and they're allowed to form blastocysts, which are bundles of cells that could potentially go on to form a human embryo. Now, around half of these cells fertilised normally and they then went on to produce a similar number of stem cells compared to control cells that hadn't had this DNA transplant but were fertilised in the same IVF process. And this has actually been described as three-parent IVF because the nuclear which is the genomic DNA and the mitochondrial DNA came from two different women. So did it lead to healthy babies? Well at the moment there are some serious ethical concerns about actually allowing these eggs to then develop into humans so they were stopped at the blastocyst stage once we had enough information about how they were forming but previous work has been carried out on eggs from macaque monkeys who are genetically relatively similar and they transplanted the DNA in the same way they then implanted those eggs into female macaques and these have now developed into fully healthy three-year-old macaque monkeys that show all of the same sort of health markers as normal monkeys that haven't had the same transplant process. And so the researchers who uh, wrote in this in the journal Nature now call for more research into the safety and efficacy of this type of research so that hopefully we can move forward into clinical trials. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm going to move to dung beetles. Um, South African dung beetles scuttling across scorching hot desert sands use their dung balls not just as food, but also as a way to keep themselves cool. That's according to a new study um, from a research team led by Jochen Smolker from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and they've been watching dung beetles, they're also known as scarab beetles, um, as they roll balls of dung across two circular arenas that they drew in the sizzling sand at midday in the South African desert. Yes, this really is quite challenging work, I think they were doing, um, in the desert in South Africa. Well, they, they published their results in the journal Current Biology, and what they found was that... Um, when they shaded the arena and kept the temperature below 50 degrees centigrade, the beetles crawled straight along without stopping. But at a higher temperature, the beetles periodically stopped and climbed on top of their dung balls, where they preened their front legs, perhaps licking fluids onto themselves to cool down by evaporation. And at progressively higher temperatures, the beetles climbed on top of their balls more frequently, until at 60 degrees centigrade, they spent 70% of their time standing on top of their balls. <laughs> OK, so they're obviously doing this for, for a reason. I would have thought that climbing on top of the ball might, might get you further from the ground, but at least you're just as exposed. You, you might think that actually hiding under it would be a better bet because then you get some shade. So how does climbing on their balls help? It's fantastic. The, one of the reasons I really like this study is that after making this observation, the team then went out and did a series of experiments to try and unpick this, exactly what, what what's going on. Um, the first thing they did was they used thermal imaging cameras and they found that while they're standing on the sand, the beetle's legs can get 10 degrees hotter um, and then they cool down really quite quickly when they climb up on the ball. So they are cooling down when they climb up on the ball. The, uh, the question then is why? Well, um, they first they did was uh, they tested whether getting hot feet was what caused the beetles to climb on their balls in the first place and they did this by giving them little silicon booties 
feeties, um, which insulated their feet against the hot sand. That sounds like quite a delicate operation, but they were obviously quite good at this. And when these boots were on, it reduced the number of times the Beatles climbed up on their balls by 35%. So coming cooler feet definitely stopped them from doing this. Um, then there are a couple of explanations that really get to the bottom of what's happening when they when they climb up on these, these balls. Um, the first is that they actually have a platform to get them off the hot sand. It's the sand that's really hot. We see desert ants doing similar things because they climb up onto blades of grass to get away from the hot sand. Um, we also think that the balls provide a heat sink um, because they're moist, um, they're made out of dung and um, they cool down by evaporation to around about 31 degrees centigrade. Uh, and to test if cooler balls were better heat sinks, the team gave the beetles refrigerated and heated balls to push around. Um, and they d- basically the beetles climbed on top of the hot balls, which were 40 degrees centigrade, 73% more often than the cool balls, which were 15 degrees centigrade. Um, And what they think is happening is as the beetles, because they're pushing the balls, not pulling them, as they roll across the sand, it actually cools the sand down that they're about to step on. And they did show, in fact, that by it cools the, the sand, the normal balls cool the sand down by a couple of degrees, which presumably is enough to help. So really it just seems that by carrying around their own personal cooling devices, it gives the dung beetles this advantage over other animals because... It means they don't have to scurry off to try and find shelter when things get really hot. All it has to do is take a break from all the pushing and hop on top of its dung ball. So making tiny silicon shoes and refrigerating balls of dung. Don't let anybody ever tell you that science isn't a glamorous career choice. (laughs) Thank you very much, Helen. Now, Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, is a potentially lethal and often hospital-acquired infection of the gut that causes bloating, diarrhoea and abdominal pain. One strain called O27, is particularly aggressive and has caused 50,000 cases and 5,000 deaths in recent years in the UK alone. It's often associated with a disruption of the bacteria that normally live in the gut, called the gut microbiota, so it can be a big problem when people are treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics. Now, new research at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge, the University of Aberdeen and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has identified a cocktail of bacteria which, when fed to infected mice, clears out the C. diff. Brendan Wren from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is involved in the project and he joins us now. Brendan, thank you ever so much for joining us. So what really is the problem with C. diff? It's a very unusual infection since that uh, antibiotics, which we all rely on, actually ends up exacerbating the disease. So when uh, patients are given antibiotics, it kills the good bacteria as well as the bad bacteria and it disturbs the gut microbial balance. In other words, the antibiotics are indiscriminate and under these conditions, the bacteria and clostridium difficile takes over, it produces toxins and, uh, and, and uh, as you mentioned, it can cause uh, death and, and severe diarrhoea. So how do we, traditionally, how do we treat it? There are some antibiotics that can be used, but these, again, do disturb the microflora. And under these conditions, you know, patients can become more and more ill and they can have multiple relapses. So it's, it's quite a desperate chronic uh, disease to the extent where, in some countries, people have attempted to replace the microflora with bacteria from the faeces of, of a patient or a near relative. So this faecal transplantation has been used fairly successfully in many cases to restore the microflora and uh, overcome clostridium difficile infection. Now, faecal transplant, the very idea of it, has got quite a lot of yuck factor associated with it. Was this what inspired you to look for this particular cocktail of bacteria that you found? 
Um, well, the colleagues at uh, the Sanger Institute have done exactly that, but the important part of the study is that they've mimicked the human disease in mice, and that's allowed them to uh, follow the disease and, and follow the populations of the bacteria in the, in the gut uh, using the new uh, 6NES sequencing methods. And this allowed them to know the relative proportions of all the very complex bacteria that are there. And sure enough, uh, when antibiotics are taken, Clostridium difficile does take over the gut, and they were able to monitor you know, which bacteria became available as the, the mice recovered and ended up uh, choosing a, a collection of uh, six specific bacteria um, that, allowed the, uh, that could be used as a cocktail uh, as a f form of uh, bacteria therapy. So now we have a more rational approach as to restoring the, the uh, gut microflora rather than using fecal transplantation. It certainly gets over some of the, the yuck factor, doesn't it? What, yeah. what bacteria were these? Were these things we already knew about, or is there something actually new to science here? Uh, most of them are quite obscure, and, and three of them were actually quite novel, and uh, they've been fully sequenced now and, uh, and can study them in far more detail. So they were, three of them were completely novel, and I'm sure that there may well be other bacteria out there that may, might be quite useful uh, in a cocktail to, to help get back to restore the normal microflora. Now, is it something in particular about these bacteria that you think is performing the role or would it really work with with any cocktail that's the right balance of bacteria i think it's uh, only some bacteria would allow this for, for various reasons it's, it's to do with competition for food uh, and to um, there, there are many different factors but not all not any old bacteria would uh, be capable of doing this so it's a form of probiotics but it's a more rational approach and we still need half a lot to do to really understand why these in particular are good, and I'm, I'm sure there are probably some others out there as well. So what's going to be the next step? Presumably we can't just use the same bacteria because these are from mice, but can we apply the same sorts of techniques to looking at the human gut microbiota and, and trying to work out if there are key microbes that we can then, as you said, put into a probiotic that we then use to treat C. diff? Yes, that's what we're doing currently for a, a new MRC a three million pound grant and we're looking at the patients who come into hospital before after during infection and during reinfection and we're, and using the new sequencing techniques we will um, follow all the all the bacteria that are in their guts and and work out an ideal combination that would allow rational bacteria therapy now they say that your gut microbiota is as unique to you as your fingerprint. Does this mean that actually we'll have to work out a new cocktail for each person or, or in the mice did you find that actually there were these core bacteria that worked for every mouse you tested? At the moment uh, the, it, it did seem to work for most mice but uh, again we, we won't know what hap happened in humans um, but there, there are some uh, general species that, that we, we have great hope for and uh, uh, although people do have individual microbes, there are thousands of those species. The point is that, that some of these uh, would be particularly good at growing and, and counteracting the effects of competition with Clostridium difficile. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, Brendan. And uh, you can find a paper about this work by Trevor Lawley et al. that was published in the journal PLOS Pathogens this week. And now, changes in the Gulf Stream over the last 5,000 years are destabilising trapped methane over at least 10,000 square kilometres of the US eastern margin. And if this were to be released, it could cause abrupt climate changes, and this is according to research published in the journal Nature.
But methane is a gas, so how does that actually get trapped underwater? Well, it's actually trapped in something called methane hydrate, which is a solid form of ice and methane. It's stable at high pressures and low temperatures, so perfect for existing within the first few hundred metres of marine sediment. And that's in a region known as the Gas Hydrate Stability Zone, or GHSZ. They actually represent one of the largest reservoirs of organic carbon on Earth, and sudden release of this methane hydrate has been linked to past global climate changes such as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. Another concern is that melting gas hydrates have also been implicated in continental slope failures that can cause underwater landslides. Sounds quite scary. And if that's all melting and releasing the methane, we've got a real problem on our hands. Um, How can we tell that that's what's going on? Well, in order to investigate the stability of the methane hydrates along the American continental shelf, researchers Benjamin Frampus and Matthew Hornback at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, combined seismic data that showed the depth of the GHS with thermal models of the ocean. And they found that the stable zone is actually considerably deeper than predicted from models based on current ocean temperatures. And they're suggesting that that shows that there is some melting occurring in the sub-seabed. Their results actually suggest that today's warmer temperatures are destabilising up to two and a half gigatons of methane hydrate, and that's just in this one region. And uh, what's causing that? They had looked at all sorts of different scenarios and they conclude that the most likely explanation is a change in either the temperature or the exact location of the Gulf Stream. That's the warm current that flows across the Atlantic. Absolutely. And uh, is that having any noticeable effect? At the moment, it's actually quite unclear what effect it may have, especially as there's some debate over the role of gas hydrates in continental shelf instability. And the predictions are that it could take as much as 5,000 years for this methane to actually escape into the atmosphere. However, the new research does highlight the importance of understanding these methane hydrates, and it points us towards new methods to research other important sites of methane storage where we know conditions are definitely changing rapidly. And the Arctic is a fantastic example of that. There's loads of this stored under there. And if we can apply the same seismic records and thermal modelling, then we really could understand a lot more about it. Excellent. I mean, I guess we do focus a lot on CO2, but it's lots of other gases and things going on in the atmosphere that have effects on the climate and that we really should be paying attention to. Yes, methane is, a, is very much something we should be worried about. It does break down in the atmosphere relatively quickly, but it breaks down into CO2, so it is a carbon source. Now, also this week, a conference at St Catherine's College here in Cambridge hoped to shed some light on the plight of British oyster beds. Despite being a very long way from the coast, oysters were once a very important trade here in Cambridge, especially at the Stourbridge Fair. And if you dredge the River Cam, you actually find lots of old oyster shells that are worn smooth by the passage of time and water. But as well as being an important commercial species, oysters played an important ecological role. And to find out more about British oysters, I met Dr Philinezu Ermgessen on the banks of the Cam. Native oysters used to be a really dominant ecosystem in coastal waters all around the temperate climate of the world, actually, so in the US and around Europe. But in the mid-1800s, they suffered enormous overfishing and overexploitation just through huge demand and the increase in technology associated with that fishery. So they went through a huge population crash. So really, they're just a fraction of their former populations, and fundamentally that, that habitat has disappeared from many of our coasts. 
what are the threats that the oyster beds are facing? Is it purely overfishing or are there invasive species, disease, those sorts of problems as well? The, the beds have suffered from overexploitation, but the peak exploitation was really towards the end of the 1800s. Since then, they've never really recovered, and that's as a result of numerous factors, including invasive species, the introduction of a disease in the 80s, which really has high mortality on the native beds, as well as pollution. But it's clear we know now, by looking at the oysters, that they provide a whole range of services which we definitely aren't getting anymore. Things like water filtration, they are filter feeders, so they clear the water column, making the water more transparent, which is great for bottom-rooting vegetation. They also help denitrify the water by concentrating these, these sediments full of nitrates, which then bacteria work on to convert those nitrates that are very active biologically to nitrogen, which is inert and can escape into the atmosphere. They also create fantastic structure, uh, which fish love as a habitat, particularly when they're small. They can hide between the oysters and suffer from a lower rate of predation as a result. So what would a typical healthy oyster bed look like? There are very few examples remaining, but a typical healthy oyster bed would be made up predominantly of oysters. They'd be lying on the dead shells from previous generations of oysters, and they'd be at a relatively high density, probably over 50 oysters per metre squared. And what are the oyster beds that we do see now? What do they look like? Well, oyster beds that we see today are defined by um, OSPA, which is an international convention, as being more than five oysters per metre squared. I mean, they're really not habitat building. Where we do find them, they tend to be individuals scattered across the ground. They're not really building any habitat whatsoever anymore. They're really sitting on the sediments. What do we think might be the impact if we do actually lose these oyster beds completely? Again, we don't really know because we don't have very good baseline data and there aren't many good examples out there. What we do know is they have been lost completely from the Vardensee in, in the Netherlands and associated with that loss of habitat, there has been the loss of, of several associated species. It's clear that if we get these habitats back, we really hope that we can start to see a bolster of the populations that were previously associated with them. As yet, we can't identify those species. We need a bit more science. What now do we think we can start doing to try and get back to that position and to give ourselves healthy oyster beds again? Oyster restoration has been really successful in the United States. They've invested a lot of money into restoration and they have huge public support for putting reefs back in the water where they, where they previously were found and now are non-existent. It's a huge investment, but also, as I say, just the public have really gotten behind it. We're not really seeing that yet in the United Kingdom. It would be great to see more support for the native oyster, hopefully as people realise the real value of the habitat that we've lost. We'll begin to see that motivation reappear in our communities. But certainly in coastal communities still today, there is a great love of the oyster. There's a lot of cultural value associated with having that fishery and with knowing they're out there providing all these services. And what's going to be the next stage? How do we actually take this forward to come up with a more comprehensive and a more joined-up plan to make sure that we can protect these environments? At the moment, really, the key players in oyster restoration are the fishermen themselves. The fishermen have a great understanding of this habitat and of the species and a, and a fantastic cultural connection with them, and they're really the best advocates for restoration that we have. They're really pushing for restoration in the United Kingdom, primarily so they can restart an active fishery on the basis of the native oyster and not just the non-native. I think that's definitely the place to start. Ideally, we'd love to see that grow into habitat restoration, where restoration is undertaken purely for the habitat's sake and for all those services. Does this mean that... As a consumer, we should be asking for English oysters in order to encourage those fishermen to make sure they bring us the right things. Absolutely, we should be eating more native oysters. It is a big concern that if we start to produce more, that the culture associated with eating oysters more commonly has declined and that there won't be a demand. We'd love to be able to support our local fishermen in investing in this restoration to produce more native oysters.
Felinzu Ermgassen from Cambridge University. Now from oyster beds to salt marshes. One of Britain's most unusual landscapes can be found along its coastline. Salt marshes are home to unique species of plants, provide breeding grounds for birds and act as natural flood defences. Over the years, many salt marshes have been lost to agriculture or reclaimed for development, but now there are several major projects underway to restore areas of coastline back to their natural state. However, as Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham has been finding out in North Norfolk, a new study has found restoring salt marshes is extremely difficult. I'm looking out across a vast salt marsh. There are channels of water, rather a lot of mud, tufts of vegetation, patches of brown and green, the old yellow flower poking through. Just beyond the horizon, there should be the sea. There's a wind farm offshore in the distance. This is Stiffkey, a salt marsh almost exactly midway along the North Norfolk coast. And with me is Alistair Grant from the University of East Anglia. Salt marsh is covered with terrestrial plants, but several times a month the salt marsh will be covered by seawater, so the terrestrial plants that live here have to be able to cope with full-strength seawater. Almost no plants can do that. So we're dealing with unique biodiversity, plants that only live on salt marshes and aren't found anywhere else. Now you've been looking at, at projects to, to recreate salt marsh. That's right. There used to be huge areas of salt marsh around the UK. The great majority of those have been reclaimed for use as agricultural land. We're now down to about 40 square kilometres of salt marsh in the whole of England and Wales. And that salt marsh is eroding as a result of sea level rise and and other pressures. As a result of that, there's actually a legal requirement on the government to create salt marsh, to replace any salt marsh that is being lost to coastal erosion if you want to build a new port that involves destroying salt marsh or indeed mudflat, then you have to create habitat to replace the habitat that is being lost to the coastal development. But what you found with your study is that recreating it, it doesn't end up as the same. That's right. Because salt marshes develop naturally on mud on the upper intertidal, everyone assumed that all you would need to do would be to let the sea back in and nature would take its course. But actually it's it's not that simple. Sites that were created 20 years ago now still lack many of the most interesting species. Sea lavender, for example, one of the most charismatic of the plant species, is almost completely absent from created marshes. And It's not just a question of time. So we've looked at sites that were flooded accidentally, in some cases more than a century ago, and they still are not like natural salt marshes. They're a bit better, but they still lack many of these perennial species, many of the more interesting species, and don't recreate the biodiversity or the landscape characteristics of the natural marshes. So why do you think that is? What do you think is going on? It seems to be down to the environmental conditions. So what happens when you take a salt marsh and drain it for agricultural use? The salt is washed out of the soil, the soil texture changes, the organic carbon in the soil oxidises and the soil shrinks. And when that's flooded again, it 
tends to be rather too consolidated. On the upper salt marsh, it can be very hard, almost like concrete. On the lower salt marsh, it, it is often too waterlogged. So it's, it's a bit like having a pot plant where you give it too much water, the soil becomes deoxygenated, and very few plants can survive in those conditions. So what does that mean? I suppose it means we must preserve the salt marsh that, that still exists. And, and what, do your best to get salt marsh back? Yes, it certainly means that we should preserve the salt marsh that we've got, particularly the upper, more diverse marsh, which is so difficult to recreate. Since we did the work that's described in this paper, we've actually been looking at ways that you can manipulate the environment to try to make conditions better. We've also been looking at planting these more interesting plants, and we can establish them if we establish the right conditions, then we can establish the plants and the survival of those transplanted plants is is very high. But the bottom line is, preserve what's here. Certainly wherever possible, preserve what's here. Alistair Grant from the University of East Anglia talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. You can download the latest Planet Earth podcast from our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and me, Helen Scales. Still to come, Hannah Critchlow asks why you can melt a marshmallow but you can't melt a potato. But now let's return to our topic of ugly conservation. But this time we are going to look at a group of species, the very thought of which may make your skin crawl. And these are parasites. I've heard it said that almost every species has its own unique species of parasite, often more than one. So with every extinction, we're losing at least one extra species, if not more, that may have never been properly studied. Andres Gomez from the American Museum of Natural History in New York argues that parasites need to be pushed up the agenda, not just in scientific research, but also in the teaching of conservation. Andres, thank you very much for joining us. Firstly, why parasites? Well, parasites have uh, very important roles in ecosystems. So they have shaped not only the evolutionary processes by which we observe biodiversity today, but they also have really important functional roles in maintaining ecosystems as we know them now. They're also very important numerically. We think that parasitism is the most common consumer strategy in the planet. So if we want to conserve biodiversity, by necessity, we'll be conserving parasites. How well do we actually understand parasites? They are obviously, because of their impact on people, they've been a topic of quite a bit of research. But from a broader perspective, as part of their role in ecological systems, how well do you think we understand them? We are just beginning to understand their importance in ecosystems and in uh, things like food webs, for example. It's only in the last decade or so that we have done the mo- most of the research that uncovers the, the functions that parasites carry out in ecosystems across the the globe. So there's a lot to learn. Now, we've just been talking about the ecosystem services that oysters provide. Presumably, we're looking at similar things with parasites. There's something that they are doing that just wouldn't happen without their presence. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many examples of that kind of process. And we usually separate ecosystem services from functions. And by services, we, we usually only mean things that benefit humans. But there are a lot of ecosystem functions that are 
mediated by parasites, there are incredibly important. Uh, parasites mediate things like competition, species coexistence, distribution and abundance of their host through uh, ecosystems and a whole other suit of uh, things that are happening in nature. We've also already mentioned uh, the sort of potential for genetic exploitation of microbes, and this was a good argument for conserving things like bacteria and fungi. Are we seeing the same thing with parasites? Is there something there that we can manipulate to get a benefit for people? Well, I don't know that we would necessarily need to manipulate parasites genetically to get that kind of benefit. We know that parasites produce a lot of biochemical substances out there that we can use for um, health and research, for example. We know that parasites are, are, are um, engaging their host's immune systems in very complex ways, and by learning about parasites, we can learn about our own uh, physiology and anatomy. We also know that parasites, for example, are doing things like uh, absorbing heavy metals that they find in circulation in their host. So as much as they're hurting their host in one way or another, they could also be providing benefits to the host in some other ways. Now, I mentioned earlier that we think that there's at least one species of parasite for every species of non-parasite. Does this mean that, that sort of in modern day extinctions, they are actually the biggest losers? We we believe so, yes. We think that there are many more endangered parasites, that there are hosts that we know are, are endangered. There's a recent study that estimated that if we were to lose just five species of carnivores in North America, we would lose up to 56 species of parasites. So if if you extrapolate that throughout the web of life, we you, you, could, you could arrive at a number of threatened or extinct parasite species that it's uh, a lot larger than those of, of the hosts that, that are the, usually the, the kinds of creatures that we care about. Now, presumably, parasites face all of the same threats that their hosts face. So looking at rhinos, for example, if there are habitat loss, that means that rhinos can't survive, that obviously immediately impacts on the parasites themselves. Are there other risks and other pressures that parasites are facing that we aren't considering as part of conserving the larger animals? Well, parasites are interesting because they are, you know, one of the few types of creatures out there for which we have dedicated extermination plans. Invasive species being probably the other, the only other one. So when we when we carry out eradication efforts for parasites, for good reasons, because they 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 definitely cause uh, human suffering and a lot of, and losses for um, economic development and so forth. Um, we we may be affecting the survival of other related parasite species that were not the target of the eradication effort, for example. Um, and there are other things that are happening, global processes like climate change that may benefit some parasites but may definitely hurt others. Then there's one other thing about parasites that's, that's critical, and that is that we we know that parasites will decline, will co-decline with their host. So as you lose the host, population of the host declines, so will parasites. But the parasites will go extinct well before the hosts go extinct. They need a threshold host population to maintain an efficient transmission level. So uh, we, we, we can have the situation in which the host still around, but the parasites have gone already. So what do we now need to start doing in order to, to tackle this? Well, we need to do several things. One of them is we need to increase our, our research into parasites. We, know, we need to know what parasites are there 
and um, in what kinds of conditions. We need to know how they are transmitted and when their ecological dynamics. If we don't know that, we can hardly develop a strategic uh, plan to conserve them. We also need to educate biologists into the importance of parasites in ecosystems and through evolutionary time. And I think that we also need to do more things like what you're doing right now, and that is, you know, making a case in the public that parasites are interesting and they're charismatic in in, in themselves, and that and that we probably wouldn't know biodiversity as we know it today without parasites. Thank you very much. And again, we do have to get over that yuck factor, I think, in order to uh, to really work out how important these species are to us. Thank you ever so much, Andres. That's Andres Gomez from the American Museum of Natural History. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Bowsler and me, Helen Scales. Now, today we are joined by Simon Watt from the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, Gareth Griffith from Aberystwyth University and Andres Gomez from the American Museum of Natural History. You have been sending in your questions and comments on Facebook. Dirk Dombrinsky suggests that we should definitely conserve everything that we can because mankind is responsible for the biggest loss of species on Earth. And we don't know yet what will be required to ensure our survival in the future and thus we should be having a maximum of reserves with the gene pool enabled to react to collapsing ecosystems. Gareth, I wonder if you might have some comments that reflect on that. It certainly seems that bacteria are likely to be a, a good source for interesting genes. Yeah, well, I think the coming approach now with this capacity to sequence at huge levels is to, to just do all the DNA in the habitat and uh, whilst you can also see what organisms are there, you also are looking at individual genes and pathways. That that's going to explore huge you know, biotechnological potential. So it's not just just looking at, at interesting DNA, but actually how all of these fit together. The also the the epigenetic factors, the things that control the expression of different genes. Yes, th- there's a fair bit of work to do having done that as well, because you've got to put them together into into sort of genome sequences and work out how that you know you have the, the genetic pathways that these novel pathways work. But there is huge scope there. I think it's going to be quite transformative of our knowledge of the processes that happen in these natural ecosystems. Jeremy Baker, also writing on Facebook, uh, makes sort of the opposite point, and I'll bring Simon in on this one. Simon, Jeremy says that trying to preserve species seems rather silly. He says life is, in fact, the process of evolution, and by preserving life and not allowing evolution and not allowing extinctions, we are creating life that's ill-adapted to the very changing environment. Now, Simon, how would you respond to that? I would say it kind of misses the scale of the problem, I suppose, that we're facing at the moment. This is the biggest mass extinction that there has been since the time of the dinosaurs. It's hard to believe that we're more potent than a meteor strike, but that does seem to be the case. And I'm not a a hippie by any means. I'm not overly (laughs) concerned about the preservation of animals or plants or things for their own sake. I'm partly for the preservation of the natural world, for the preservation of man. Not only would it be good to have forests for their own sake, but they are vital to our survival. Now, I've heard the arguments before, actually, that when we're conserving an environment, what we're stopping is a process called succession that normally would push things on into the next, so scrubland would become forest, etc. So I guess this argument sort of works in the same way, that by keeping a variety of different ecosystems around, we're actually helping to preserve more life and more biodiversity. Precisely. And as well as that, there's a lot of research now suggesting that things like um, well, biodiversity for its own sake appears to actually matter. Uh, forests with more different varieties of trees tend to be less prone to desertification, less prone to disease. There's less landslides. They're just more resilient as a whole. 
Excellent. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us, Simon. And thank you, everyone, for sending in your questions. Helen. And now, looking for a nutritious liquid lunch, here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week, we ponder potatoes. You can bake a potato, boil a potato, fry it, chip it and roast them. But can you melt one? Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Sean from Surrey in the UK. On a recent family camping trip, we were baking potatoes and toasting a few marshmallows on a metal grid over the embers of a fire. I'm pretty sure that most things can exist as a solid, liquid or gas. So my question is, what would I have to do to melt my potato to a liquid like I can melt a marshmallow? And would this be possible to achieve outside my tent and with a beer? Thank you. We invited an expert for lunch to discuss with us the chemistry behind this conundrum. I'm Dr Peter Wothers from the Department of Chemistry and I'm currently sitting in a cafe enjoying my last little mouthful of jacket potato here. Mm. Very good. So why don't potatoes melt? Well, this is actually quite a tricky answer, but it depends on the complexity of what we're trying to melt. The things that generally will melt... And, and reversibly, so if you cool them down again, it might form a solid again, would be very simple substances. So certainly, if everyone knows that uh, mercury is already a liquid, OK, if you cool it down, you'll get a solid again. You keep doing that forever. It'll just reverse between solid, liquid and solid as you warm it and cool it. But if you get more complicated things, there are other possibilities. Things can start to change, start to break down. Molecules can actually decompose. And, and this is what's going to happen. So if you think about sugar, this is a more complicated structure. It's made up of three different types of atoms. We've got carbon hydrogen and oxygen and if we warm this up well we can get liquid sugar we can melt the sugar and this is where the molecules are all moving around still in their sugar forms but if you heat that up too much again different parts of the sugar molecules might start to interact with each other and form new chemical compounds you can boil off water and you're going to be left with this sort of black gooey mess which is carbon now when you come to a potato it's even more complicated you haven't got one type of substance there you've got a complete array of all sorts of uh, complexity you've got water in there, you've got starches in there, you've got sugars in there, you've got fats in there. All these ones can start interacting with each other. You're not just going to end up with one liquid mess of all of those. They're going to start interacting at much lower temperatures, recombining, giving out water vapour and decomposing what's left into this sort of black, gooey carbon mess. And that's what you end up with your burnt potato. So, due to the chemical complexity of the simple starchy spud, it can't melt. Instead, cooking causes the constituent molecules in the potato to interact, evaporate and decompose, and at really high temperatures form just black carbon. Marshmallow, on the other hand, is made of simpler, smaller molecules, including refined sugars, which, if we carefully heat at low temperatures, we can melt the inside and keep the sugars intact. Crawl 1969, Evan A.U. and Clifford K. agree on the forum and Zach Zeus adds it would be cool to turn a potato into instant mash though. Now going from spuds to drugs with a question just in from Aru Hutterman in Helsinki Finland. How come some fungi have evolved to produce substances that are hallucinogenic like psilocybin? What's the benefit and cost of producing such chemicals? Love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for a great show. So why does nature bother to produce hallucinogens? 
What do you think about that one? Let us know by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. And we also heard on our forum from Clinton Norcher who said, I might not be able to melt my potato, but I can explode one. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. And that's all we have time for this week. So please keep your questions coming in to chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join us at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Thanks to our guests this week. That's Simon Watt from the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, Gareth Griffith from Aberystwyth University, Brendan Wren from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Philine Ermgarsen from Cambridge University and Andres Gomez from the American Museum of Natural History. Next week is our annual trip to the National Cancer Research Institute's conference, this year being held in Liverpool. We'll hear the latest news in treatment and research, including how a tumour in one part of the body can actually cause changes elsewhere that pave the way for the tumour to spread. Thanks this week to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Chris Smith and Tom Simpkins. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.